Hello, everybody. This is Noah, and welcome to Change Talk, a podcast where I have conversations with people who are thinking about change and are open to talking about it. In this week's episode, I speak with fellow podcaster and former soccer player Hannah Lichtenstein. After Hannah's soccer career came to a close, she figured out a way to repurpose her love for sports into her new chapter. She is the host of Run Along Podcast, a show all about the transition to life after being a competitive athlete and has worked her way into the world of sports journalism. Hannah sat down with me to talk about her desire to practice turning inward when faced with strong emotions instead of always reaching right away for help. Thanks for listening, enjoy, and may Hannah's change talk in some small way inspire your own. Please note that this podcast is not therapy. Seek professional help if needed. Today I am here with Hannah Lichtenstein. Um, I have just met Hannah in the last five, ten minutes. Um, So this is one of those for people who are tracking who when I'm speaking to people that I know and people that I don't. And I found Hannah from her podcast called Run Along. So I'm not going to say anything more about that. So without further ado, hello, Hannah. Well, thank you, Noah, for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited and very excited that we could connect over our mutual affinity for the Philadelphia Eagles. Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like uh, Noah said, I host my own podcast uh, called Run Along. And it's pretty much a show all about the transition to life after being a competitive athlete. Um, Definitely came from a very personal place. Uh, My own transition out of soccer, a sport that I played since I was five years old. Um, And I think, yeah, athletes are, it's something you do. It it structures your whole life. It can become such an intrinsic part of your identity. It's how you build your social circles. It's how your parents schedule their days and maybe build their own social circles. And so much really goes to uh, being an, into being an athlete. Um, and I found that for me, and obviously as I've spoken to a lot of my guests, that transition to no, no longer being a part of that um, competitive sports world um, is a tough one. Um, you know, you find yourself in office settings where you're not introducing yourself as someone who plays football or someone who plays basketball anymore. It might come, you know, more as an afterthought. Uh, You were trying to figure out how do I change my diet now that I'm not burning 3000 calories a day. Uh, These are all, all sorts of topics that we go into uh, on the show. And it's been, it's been wonderful. I started in May, 2019 and still going strong. So Amazing. So you had your one year anniversary of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you've probably experienced having a podcast is, is such a, a, a journey. Uh, and 
you probably connect and have conversations with people that you never could have imagined and it's this wonderful thing but of course like anything that you care about there are those those valleys as well to navigate um when you're editing audio or reaching out to people and all the trials and tribulations that we go through as podcasters <laughs> so you do this all on your own yes uh wow. i've I found that, you know, now I'm uh, in a journalism grad school program and my, pod my podcast was a, a very nice uh, crash course in journalism. Doing Amazing. The, doing the interviews and the script writing and the audio editing. And so it can yeah. get stressful. So I've obviously had the thought in my head, okay, is it time to maybe delegate, ask someone else to do this for me, but we're not there yet. <laughs> so I got lucky. Thank God that my wife, Atara, is a journalist. Well, she's actually working in, in speech and, and special needs and, and mm. things like that. But she had her undergrad in, in journalism. So she does all the editing and the production. So uh, thankfully, I've been just focused on the interviews and, of course, reaching out and doing outreach. And, and having someone to do it with is, 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 a, is a blessing because then it's like you can focus on what you do best. Um, but also, it sounds like you are learning all this stuff because you're in your grad school for journalism not a bad quality to have in a wife that's yeah, <laughs> picked exactly. a good one there even yeah. if you didn't think that a podcast was in your future uh yeah no uh, the journalism uh program started about a week and a half ago and wow. we're really uh learning how to tell stories not just in audio and written form but also in video we we do it all so it's going to be pretty intensive but i'm excited to learn all these hands-on skills amazing so I'm asking you right now, as if you were having your guest on Run Along, mm. about your story as an athlete. So do you want to tell us a bit, what, like, from, from whatever age you want to start, just your experiences as an athlete growing up, what that was like for you, what it was like to play at higher levels, and what it was like to transition into life outside mm -hmm. of athletics? Uh, yeah, so the U.S. Women's National Team won the World Cup in 1999. I was five years old. And I think my parents, I'm their one and only child. They wanted to get me involved in things and they were signing me up for piano and ballet and all the activities to get my feet wet. And they put me in soccer. It was kind of the thing to do with uh, the new hype around the women's team and more and more girls playing. Um, and I didn't like it at first, wasn't good at it at first. And something flipped in me. Uh, I haven't really been able to identify it, neither have my parents. Uh, just one summer, five-year-old Hannah decided I'm going to empty myself into this sport. You know, I was a little, I was a little bit of a perfectionist from, <laughs> from the get-go, and I think that when you have like a tangible skill with the ball at your feet that you're trying to learn, and especially maybe when you're not good at something, you just become maybe tunnel vision on, I want to get good at this, I want to learn this skill. And so I remember creating these sequences that I would make myself do, you know, 50 times. And I, I, if I mess up once, then I had to go to the beginning, that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Maybe not the best sign for a six-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, a, a, yeah, an omen of what was to come. But, and I became obsessed with David Beckham. I was clipping his pictures and organizing them in my room. <laughs> Mia Hamm. I, you know, I was loving it. My... I always tell the story of how I would want to watch soccer, but sometimes, you know, when we'd be out and my dad would sneak me into a pub and put me under the table so that I could watch soccer because they wouldn't usually let six-year-olds in. And it really just 
yeah, took over. Um, that was like, I watched it on TV, joined all the teams, get to the point where my parents are thinking about signing me up for travel teams and club teams. Um, I was always playing a bit older because that's just how my birthday fell. And I found that that was something I really enjoyed kind of pushing myself with older girls, uh, played in high school, played on, you know, the best club team that was in my area and really around 16, 17 realized that I wanted to keep this going. I, I was definitely academic oriented first. It was never going to be, let's go to a school for soccer, um, only. Um, and so trying to find that balance of academics and athletics ultimately led me to Swarthmore College, a D3 school. If you, I don't know, again, how much you know about the American system, but. I don't. Um, <laughs> I, know it's, I know what D3 is. I just didn't know the school. Yes. Uh, Swarthmore College. A lot of people confuse it for like Hogwarts or. Mm. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. It's a little school outside of Philly. Um, had a really wonderful experience there with a program that was really on the up and up. Um, we hadn't had a lot of um, success on a, on a national scale. And I was lucky enough to be there during a time where we made our, you know, we won our first conference tournament. We made our first NCAA tournament and then went on to the NCAA tournament for the four years that I was there, um, including a run to the, to the elite eight. And I think there was just, the student athlete experience was so intense yeah. for, for me um, in college. And it was, you know, we roomed together, we partied together, we had classes together, we moved in a mob together throughout the cafeteria. It was, it was all consuming. And your track suits and... <laughs> <laughs> yes, we probably thought we were way cooler than we actually were at, on this nerdy uh, college campus. <laughs> but, um, and of course, I remember the, um, again, the, the darker side of that intensity and being in such a pressurized team little bubble on such a small campus, but it really was kind of almost, it was like trauma bonding. Like we, <laughs> even we went through hard things together and then we, we came together even closer and that happened on a, a micro scale with some of my closest relationships on the team and then you know together as as teams do you know when you're running those sprints at 6 a.m because you forgot the pennies and all oh, I'm sure every athlete can relate you just the bonds that you make on a team and again with certain other elements in that setting are so so intense and really hard to replicate and I always kind of say that my love for soccer and my feelings towards the team experience were were more intense than maybe my D3 school asked. Yeah. Um, which again, no regrets about that. Um, but I think when it came to that transition time and the clock struck zero on my last game for Swarthmore, I, it all just, it hit me. And I was uh, realizing that I wasn't prepared. Um, to not have this, this team and this sport in my life as it had always been and started to really struggle with these issues of identity and self-worth. And um, after getting rejected from a bunch of jobs or not hearing from a bunch of jobs, I decided to see if I could keep playing soccer. You know, soccer had taken me to so many amazing experiences already. Let's see where it could keep me going. And I played in Sweden 
for mm. a year. Before a we get there, I want to ask you, you said the dark side and, and just the, the pressure. So mm-hmm. being, what were the experiences of, what was the pressure like for you? And I, I'm thinking about, you know, you were talking about that deep connection that you have with people. I, I equate it to like a camp time kind of thing where mm-hmm. people are in a setting where they're with people every day at the same time. There's sort of like this accumulation of experience. Whereas you get together with a friend once a week or something like that mm-hmm. versus every day, all the time, six, seven hours, three, four hours a day, it builds off, off of each other. And so you obviously developed really deep bonds with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously there was something beautiful about that in community and connection and purpose and meaning. And what, was the, what were the sort of darker sides for you? What was the difficulties that you were having as a student athlete before you even transitioned outside of athletics? Well, I really like that that camp uh, analogy. I would just add the one, you know, difference of you're working towards a concrete goal. Yeah. Um, Even adds, more so, you're like right. bonding over like transcending mm-hmm. your individuality to like create a team. Absolutely. Um, I think again, you've we sense the perfectionism element in me early on, but also being a forward, um, it's a very achievement oriented position um you and some people of course take on this pressure more than others and I definitely was on one end of the extreme but I'm the one who's supposed to score goals I'm the one that's supposed to create chances I want to get the accolades um and I think I didn't even realize how much I relied on external praise and external validation I would end a game and I wanted parents to come up to me tell me that I other parents come up to me and tell me I did a good job or whatever it was, get the interview for the paper. Um, but I think some of the dark, yeah, I hated losing. I hated feeling like we had set a goal or I had set a goal individually and I wasn't meeting those. Um, I really struggled with that. And I think the darker sides too, losing sight of what the soccer experience, what sports should be about. Which was more than just intense goal oriented achievement oriented all the time it, there's a there's also a pleasure of playing of being absorbed in a sport the flow of that and i'm wondering if you want to share with us just one of the best moments that you had in in your high in your college career like a moment that of ecstatic experience as an athlete what yeah do you have one that stands out <laughs> yeah of course uh my i actually redshirted my freshman year because i uh, tore my acl Ooh. And so came back as a, uh, for my first full season of college, kind of overcoming one of those major knee injuries and um, one rookie of the year had a great season and we were fifth, the fifth seed in the conference tournament. Like we barely edged, we barely scraped our way into even being in the conference tournament and ended up winning the conference tournament. And that was history making for our for our women's soccer team and making our first NCAA tournament with that automatic bid. So going through that hardship on an individual level and also just being a part of a team that really just, you know, they were fighters and it was just all about grit. And even though we were underdogs, I love being the underdog um, (laughs) and being able to have that experience was uh, one of the most amazing memories (laughs) that I hold. So, so you had that experience, you got to play at a high level soccer in college and, and you had that transition where so much of your identity for so long has been wrapped up mm. in the success of your athletics. And so when you finished, 
and you started very short, very for a very short time, just trying to transition out. It wasn't working out in the immediate way that you wanted it to. So you went right back to athletics. So tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, so my last season for my college team did not go how I wanted uh, on an individual level. We did have another one of those memorable uh, moments winning something against a rival as an underdog at the end, which was beautiful. But um, it was a really, really rocky road that last season. I was injured. Um, I was a captain and being injured, I didn't really know how to cope uh, trying to balance my per the realization that all these things I wanted for myself in this last season weren't going to happen. But how do you be a leader? And how yeah. do you not break down? It's like and Carson you... Wentz in the Super Bowl. Exactly. <laughs> the whole season and then uh, Nick Foles wins the Super Bowl. Exactly. It's, it's tough watching things from the sidelines and balancing. I don't want to be selfish, but part, you know, you as a competitor, there is a selfishness in you. And, and if when you are to, to be good and successful. And I think at the end, I really had not made a piece with myself and sport. And I actually went into coaching my alma mater for a few months. Uh, it was kind of this realization of, okay, I really want sports to be a part of my life, but how can I do that and reformulate that relationship? Um, that, I, I, that didn't feel right at that moment. And that was what led to Sweden, um, which was awesome for me athletically, personally. I still was definitely, um, struggling with those exact same demons and issues uh, as an athlete being over there. But I also felt like it was a stepping down of intensification um, of the sport. Not necessarily the level of the sport, that was good, but I wasn't a student athlete anymore. So I definitely had a lot more free time to kind of ask myself, yeah, what do I want to do? What do I like? What should I do with this free time? And it was then that I started to kind of, you know, pivot and figure out how to healthily move on. Because, I, and I want to paint a picture for people, just the schedule from an athlete as a professional, you would think it's so funny, but as a professional to, I don't know the amount of hours, but not that, you know, you practice every day, you have games, mm -hmm. but you're not, it's not like being a student athlete where you have a full schedule, you are working, you have full work, and then you have practices all the time right. in games it travel you really don't have a lot of time when you when you were a student athlete the pressure both academically and on the field is is wild definitely and I think when I tell people like oh I moved to Europe to play soccer they think that it's a next step up yeah. but you, you understand like yeah it's it was it was it was good it was like a half transition yeah then you know fully transition so you enjoyed playing over there in Sweden it was lonely at times, but really pushed me outside of my comfort zone in a way that I needed. And I think, you know, when you're right when you graduate from college, if you don't necessarily have roots yet. And I think um, it was a really um, you specific thing that I only really could have done at this moment. Um, and so I think it, it, I'm glad it happened. And uh, I have friends over there. And I think it was it was wonderful. Yes, you got to you got to play pro, and that was a mm -hmm. very cool experience as you transitioned. You did that for one year. Yeah, and then I was planning on doing actually another season, but this pandemic. Oh, uh, oh my gosh! So it's recently. Yeah. Um, oh, this is all like now, kind of. I know. Uh, yeah. 
and and but you've made the decision now that you're you're not playing yeah i've um one i think the pandemic is a little sign from the universe maybe it's time to pivot and also i have some like cumulative injuries that yeah got to start thinking about oh no the future a bit and you know if i have kids i want to be running around with them and not the hobbling older athlete with yeah. osteoarthritis everywhere. Uh, so, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, but I think I did, was really able to solidify that realization in Sweden that sports can remain in my life and should remain in my life because I've loved them so, them so much. And what is the healthiest and, you know, most exciting, most fulfilling way to do that and I was a history major in undergrad I love storytelling research writing and then with my podcast it just kind of came together that sports journalism could be the path amazing <laughs> that is awesome um and so right now you are starting you you just started your master's mm -hmm. in Chicago in journalism yeah so yeah. what's the most meaningful part of the podcast being yeah I think that I've realized how resilient athletes are. I mean, I've talked to athletes who have ended their career or had their careers ended by concussions by, you know, they didn't make the Olympic team or some had cancer diagnoses and even those, you know, those are the extremes, but all, all these little challenges that athletes have, have overcome, um, realize that these qualities of being an athlete, of course, are transferable and will make you good at your In next life. endeavors of course yeah um and i think that that's been really significant a really significant takeaway as we think about how to uh, move on to a next chapter and be excited about that next chapter um i've also realized that the end of an experience is not nearly as significant as the weight we seem to put on it um 99% of experiences in life don't end how we envision them, how we want them to, and how we think that we might be best able to handle them. But I've realized even those who have seemingly ended at the top, who won a state championship, who won a gold medal, they, it doesn't, you know, even them, they think, oh, can I keep going? Right. Uh, it's hard to feel a sense of closure come from some sort of external uh, moment or um, thing that you were able to do. And I realized that closure really needs to come from within. Was, I referenced Michael Phelps. He, we think that- Have he, you interviewed him yet? No, yeah, right. I wish, I'll have to shoot out that email, but he's like the greatest swimmer of all time. And you would have yeah. thought that there's nothing else he would have felt like he needed to do or that he could have walked quietly into the night, but he had a ton of mental health issues because his identity was so wrapped up in swimming because it was so all consuming and because it was his whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll, you'll, um, you'll let, I hope you'll get him on, on the podcast <laughs> at some point. Uh, and then I can get, get to him through you. <laughs> exactly. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I play sports. I didn't do it as competitively as you, but I have a very competitive spirit and I've transferred that into other areas of my life. 
And I think it's really valuable what you're doing because it's a huge part of the, the real people that are really devoted to athletics. It's, it's, it's a world. And so they have to learn how to channel the transferable life skills that they have and not carry with them that their sense of worth is only tied to their successes on the field. And when they're not playing, what, what does that mean about them? And I think this may be a field of, of learning and study that uh, is going to emerge. Um, maybe there's more research on it now. I don't even know, but you, you are still involved in athletics and you are in journalism and writing and, and writing stories and telling stories and interviewing people. And that's awesome. So what, what uh, in terms of the change talk, what? <laughs> yeah. So it's about, I think for me, it's about having a better, like concrete finger on my emotions. And what does that take to do that every day? And then sitting with myself and figuring out how to navigate the world, recognizing I'm an emotional person but doing so in a way that is non-stressful, non-anxiety-inducing to me and the people I interact with. <laughs> yeah, like non-reactionary almost. I, I want, can you, can you sort of, so this, we have this big topic, emotionality, and, and, mm -hmm. and sort of moderating, modulating that in some way. Let's, let's get more specific. Tell me about one particular area where this is coming up a lot for you? I feel things really deeply. I've always been a very sensitive person. Uh, I don't know how much you believe in horoscopes because you are like a hard science, you know, you, you're like a professional here and I don't want to bring in these pseudosciences, but <laughs> my horoscope says that I'm a little emotional, sensitive crier. Definitely um, cry a lot. I was always, um, you know, I've, I've, Passion. Yeah, and I'm really empathetic. People describe themselves as empaths. I find myself crying over things I read in the news and uh, TV I watch. And um, I really know that my, I guess, emotionality comes from my mother. And I think my lack of being able to sometimes handle my emotionality comes from being an only child. Um, I think that because I'm my parents' pride and joy as the one, yeah. um, you know, and also my parents had me late in life. They, they really lived a lot of life and were really, really ready to have a kid. There were a couple miscarriages. And so then when I came around, when my mom was like 40-ish, wow. um, they just wanted to do anything and everything to make me happy and safe. And if I was a little bit uncomfortable when I grew up, they made sure to take that stimuli away, which young Hannah loved and appreciated. But I think growing up, it's now meant, okay, you don't always need, you can't and shouldn't always need someone on the front lines to deal with your emotions or to help you soothe. How can I self-soothe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have, you experience things deeply and, um, and you talked a little about maybe where that, where that comes from, but overall you've been very much allowed to express emotion. You just talk about being soothed, being supported. Mm -hmm. So some people don't feel safe expressing emotion and accessing emotion. And for you, 
you have felt safe and secure to reach out for help and to really in, be in your body to experience emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people are on the, on the other side of that and the regulation that they need to f- try and figure out for themselves is how can I access my feelings more because I, I, I'm not used to that. And for you, you access your feelings very deeply, which is a very natural thing that we do. It's, it's why we're wired for that. Yeah, I know that uh, a lot of, I don't want to make it a gender thing, but certainly a lot of men struggle with that, that you're talking about and how they're conditioned in society to not necessarily tap into their feelings for sure. And I do think that mine comes with more, okay, I'm feeling the feelings. How do I best handle them now? And how do I make sure that I don't always need someone else around to treat as a punching bag as a, as an emotional punching bag and also yeah. just, or just a wall to bounce off of. It's right. great to have supports, but you also want to feel um, competent yourself in dealing with your emotions. Right. So your instinct. So first of all, you, you're not suppressed in that way. So you feel your emotions and your instinct is to reach out. These are things that people have difficulty doing. Uh, mental health concerns can be really related to people not feeling secure in being able to reach out for help. But for you, you are, you have support. So you have, mm-hmm. you speak to your parents a lot. You have friends that you reach out to. I'm wondering what, what why you think that that's problematic how, or how that becomes problematic in your life. Mm-hmm. Cause to me, it sounds like very healthy on some level. <laughs> no, definitely. I just, I, I think that for me to feel independence is I think a goal that most people have. And, and there's various boxes to tick when it comes to, to independence and feeling strong and confident within yourself. And I think for me, I just really want to work on how can I not necessarily call someone when I'm every time I'm going through a hard time or, you know, my partner, my girlfriend is the closest person emotionally to me right now. I don't, I, I can lash out at her, not and it doesn't have to do with her. It can just be, I'm stressed about this transition to school right now. And I'm stressed about whether I'm going to have enough time. And it ends up, you know, coming out in inappropriate ways because I don't know how to deal with it myself sometimes. Right. So those are two things which are related. And one of which is, uh, is that you reach out right, basically right away. Mm. So um, to feel secure and to feel safe and Mm -hmm. nurtured and nourished, et cetera. But the other thing that you just mentioned with your partner, it's not just that you reach out for support directly. It's that some of your intensity of emotion that you experience, you bring out and send it over to that person and you're not yeah. able to pull back and not take things out on that person. Yes. I always think back to, uh, I was definitely a sulker. My, uh, I had a coach call me the incredible sulk uh, <laughs> once. Because, uh, you know, I... I, you know, have a bad game or I didn't score. Maybe we won, but I didn't score. And I was just kind of, you know, moping around or very obviously upset. And I was waiting. I was always waiting. I was like, who's going to approach me? I wanted that. I wanted someone to come to me, talk me off the ledge, you know, really like soothe me. Yeah. Tell me I did a good job or tell me that it's not a big deal or tell me I'm being too hard on myself. And I really wanted someone to go through it with me. And so it was that it was never like, I'm going to go work this out on my own. When I took yeah. that time, it was, uh, yeah, that, that immediacy that I needed 
of of someone hopefully recognizing <laughs> the sulk and coming over. Right, and you want help, and you and you kind of get it, um, which is which is really helpful in many ways. And it's I'm guessing it's not something that you want to stop doing. It's mm. just that you want to have that be one of the possible ways that you learn to to deal with what's happening internally for you. Mm-hmm. And definitely in the case of soccer, I, I, I wanted to stop doing that. I remember yeah. every time I'd be on a new team, have a new coach, and I'd tell myself, okay, you did the thing. You did it once. That's it. You know, I'd feel gross about it after and be like, oh, that was so like needy and like inappropriate. But as for how I've dealt, the, the thing you're speaking to in my personal life, agreed. I think that it's good how um, I reach out to my supports and lean on them, but I would like to develop that, that other side. It's just yeah. having more tools for my emotionality. Yeah. Right. So you have one really healthy tool that you want to use continually in a balanced way. And, and, and so you want to develop something else. And what, what would that something else look like? And how have you handled the difficult emotions without reaching out? Has there been experiences mm-hmm. in the past that you've been able to do that? Well, again, something that might not be what you hear all the time is I'm a big fan of therapy. I love therapy. I've gone to many therapists um, and I love just like the tan. I feel like I'm pretty good at talk therapy. I feel like I'm pretty self-aware <laughs> getting that like cognitive behavioral therapy, like tangible things. Here's what you can do. Here's like a five senses exercise. So you can really kind of bring yourself, you know, back from the red zone emotional place. Uh, mindfulness, for sure. Uh, I listened to Tara Brock. I don't know if you oh, yeah. know much about her. She's a big deal. Um, just really trying to come back into my body because I feel like with the emotionality, there's definitely like a leaving. Yeah. Of- You're not running away from the feeling, but you want to, it's almost like you want to get, like deal with it fast. Like mm-hmm. go go get, go get help, go run for help. Mm-hmm. And just a fear maybe that, maybe that I, if I'm in my body feeling the emotions, what if I can't handle them? Right. What, what does that mean if I can't handle them on my own? Yeah. <laughs> like what's going to happen to me if I don't reach out for help right away? Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. So, yeah. So you have this experience of reaching out for help and I want to hear about what that's like to know that you can rely on people because not everybody feels that they can rely on people. So this sort of the good side of this is feeling that you can rely on people. What's Uh, that like for you? Yeah, I think the, one of the, the good parts of my emotionality and something that's such a blessing is that I'm able to really connect with people Um, I'm okay going there, you know, I'm okay, because I'm okay being vulnerable. I think that that can be refreshing and um, very special for a lot of people. And I end up forming relations, I end up forming friendships very easily. um, And I really try to tend and to and water my close relationships as, as much as I can. And sure, I'm sure the only child thing too, like just feeling feeling like I have people like have, I'll never have a sister or brother, but like feeling like I have people that are close to me that are the equivalent. And you have very strong relationships. So you have a partner and how long have have the two of you been together for? We've been together for a little over a year. Um, 
she's American, but she's in Sweden. So we're dealing with that seven hour time change. And you have your parents that you're very close to and you have close friends that you rely on. Yes, close friends. Um, you know, just it's not wild. I mean, I have like three or four that I talk to like every week. Yeah. Um, and then my cousin, who I feel like is my surrogate sister. So little yeah. circle. Right. So so some of the best parts of that is just you have an impact on in, in these relationships. They're because you were talking about impact and having an impact on people. So these relationships are just very impactful for you. Yeah. 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 I, I think of impact. I, I know that one of my um, weaknesses is being so um, fixated on, on having a good impact. Um, as an athlete, I wanted to be in the record books and I wanted to think that I was leaving this mark on this program. And it's like this weird um, ego. It's an ego thing. You want to feel like you you had a good impact on people, but impact. Yeah. I, I, we all, I think anytime you get close with someone, you have impact good and bad. So let's point out the <laughs> bad too. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, so one of that is just the safety, the reliance, the trust that you experience. What's another sort of positive marker of this ability and skill that you have of reaching out mm. to people? and experiencing your emotions without running away from them, particularly, even if you're running towards help. Mm -hmm. I think we find when we reach out that we're not alone in our, <laughs> whatever we're feeling, it can feel very specific to a situation you're going through. But I, I love when I'm venting to my, to my friends and they, have a little anecdote about, you know, this is something that I went through too, that was different, but the same. And right. it's important to hear that for, for both sides. So it brings you close to people. It's definitely, it's, it's a bonding experience. They know now that they can reach out to you for help as well. Absolutely. So then your vulnerability to others invites their ability to have this trust and support. Mm -hmm. um or you know in the in the attachment literature the secure attachment mm -hmm. so, so you're mirroring that for other people mm -hmm. um so I it hope has so <laughs> yeah well well do people in your life reach out to you yeah are you, are you think, a go-to for people i'd like to think so um yeah i think when i start friendships and relationships it can be uh kind of intimidating because i am that like <laughs> It's kind of like a forest fire. I'm like this over, I'm okay. Like share, over, I'll overshare, uh, not like in a, like, you know, about my emotions. I'll overshare about my emotions. And I think some people are like, oh, we're going to do this. This is happening. Um, and some people don't necessarily want to gravitate towards that sort of relationship. But the ones that do, again, I think it's something you help other people open up and there's just a, a mutual growing right. there. So these are things that you want to continue to have for mm -hmm. sure. So what about it do you feel is really problematic? Is it just that you don't know how to handle things by yourself or you don't have that experience of handling things effectively by yourself? Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it's, it's really feeling like if I was on a desert Island, could I 
at least obviously that's an extreme, but could I feel like I have a few different tools in myself to go to, to flip the switch and work past? Because I feel like that's really so hard for me is once I'm in a feeling, it so often takes a conversation with another person for me to move past that feeling. To yeah. regulate. Mm-hmm. Definitely. To regulate. Right. Yeah. So you just, in other words, that's how you regulate. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't know what, it's almost like, what, what would I do? How, how would I get back to my equilibrium? Mm-hmm. And sometimes working out, going on a walk, those things that therapists tell us to do, <laughs> sometimes that works for sure. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking when those more, those more intense ones come wash over me. <laughs> and, and then it's just, you want to reach out right away. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely like um, a, uh, a feeding off, you know, once I start feeling really angry, I start to feel sad about it. I think it all comes in like a big storm yeah. and that overwhelm uh, I struggle with. Right. And, and, and again, you talked a little bit about how, and maybe this is one of the reasons why you want to learn to regulate that better is that you talked about how it leaks out into relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not just reaching out for help. It's also that when you're not reaching out for help, but you're in the, the depths of the emotion that you're not necessarily able to interact the way you want to be interacting with people. Absolutely. And I, I used the word, I threw out the word trauma bonding in the experience discussing or with soccer, soccer. but I do, I mean, I want to use it more appropriately. I know that I have a trauma bonding pattern um, in my romantic relationships. And I, even at times in some of my friendships where there'll kind of be, I'm feeling something and I want to feel close, but I, I, I'm frustrated and I'm, like you know inside myself and I have this wall up and then I end up fighting with someone and um or yeah something will bad will happen something a little chaotic uh and I stir up the drama and then after that that person is able to access me yeah and then there's a closeness there and I, I love that but it shouldn't take that sort of drama and then coming down and then connection pattern yeah. for that. And I think if I can better know what I'm feeling, yeah. then we don't get to that point. <laughs> right. And, and so you have, so again, that react, the part of the reason why you want to change is because at time, first of all, you want to learn how to handle things better on your own so you have different pieces and or different tools and you've talked about a, a few different tools but also so that you don't create conflict that isn't necessarily necessary for the development of these relationships mm-hmm. or for that person's well-being definitely um, yeah, yeah i don't ever want to make a partner or a friend in my life feel like they're walking on eggshells around me or that they feel unsafe yeah. or they're not sure right. when and how they'll be able to access a certain yeah. part of me Right. And any other reasons why you want to develop more of a, of an, of an equilibrium between reaching out and processing internally by yourself, kind of? Uh, I want to be a good parent and I want to do as much work as I possibly can before I have a child, because I know that these things can uh, manifest in the parent child relationship. Meaning you don't want to have this 
the experience with your with your children where you again get emotionally riled up which can be i'm sure impatience can happen all these things mm-hmm. and then take it out on 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 them in some in some right way. Um, yeah and I, I think a word that hasn't come up yet in this conversation but which is so important and i talk about so much in my own uh relationships is boundaries yeah um, with this discussion of emotionality we got to talk about boundaries they go hand in hand and i i think as i say i want to be better at processing and identifying my own emotions. I want to be better about knowing where boundaries are for myself and then in my relationships. Right. So you have a lot of positive experiences going for you in the way that you do reach out for help. And those are obviously important to recognize because you don't want to just discard the value of the things that we, that you do and that we do. And then there's all these reasons why you want to make things better. So what is one way that you see yourself being able to in terms of the development of a more emotional balance, what's one way that you, that you want to do that for yourself? Um, I'm trying to start the day with 10 minutes of meditation. Um, I think so often, especially with my partner, you know, you, you talk from pretty much when you get up to, to when you go to bed and I was starting to realize like talk when about she boundaries asked, yeah <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah I was realizing that when she asked me how are you on text I realized that that was the first moment that I was checking in with myself and there was automatically going to be the checking in with myself was going to occur with her and so I started to be like okay can I carve out time right when I wake up where I can do that 10 minutes of checking in with myself with myself so that when we first talk, I already kind of have a, a gauge of where I'm at. So this, this 10 minutes of checking in of how are you or where are you? Um, what would that look like for you? Well, it looks like the Peloton meditation. I app. see the Peloton. <laughs> no, you don't. I'm not that bougie. You don't see the Peloton. No, I don't. Uh, care. I, I, <laughs> well, I, in fact, I the cumulative injuries. The Peloton is a good investment for my joints. Um, yes. And it's fun, and I'm sure there are so many retired athletes on the Peloton because yeah. it gets very competitive. Sure. Um, yeah, I there's some great like guided meditations on that app. Um, Tara Brock talks a lot about rain. Yep. Um, that acronym, recognize, accept, investigate, investigate, no, nurture, nurture. Okay. Nurture, yeah. Yeah, and and what do you think that would do for you? So because you mentioned checking in, how are you? That you that your partner is asking you, and then you have these experiences of the meditation. How do you integrate? So a meditation doesn't necessarily need to be asking you the question, how are you? Mm-hmm. So is it just that it helps you develop more body awareness? Like Definitely the body awareness. Um, yeah. I find that I'm someone like right when I wake up, I'm thinking about what I want to do for the day and what I need to get done before my first thing. Um, just checking in. Yeah. Instead of just, okay, I'm alive. I slept. How did I sleep? How did I, you know, what's ahead today? Not just what's ahead today, but how do I feel about what's ahead today? Right. How, yeah. Things like that. No, that makes sense because, and what that is, it's developing the skill of not being so reactionary because your mind may not even be so conscious of it. It's like, let's go, let's get up, let's run, mm-hmm. let's get to the day. Mm-hmm. By doing this, you are 
not necessarily following the desire. You're just slowing down for a second and checking in. Absolutely. That's a good point. And then maybe later you just like when you're in the moment starting to experience your emotions, maybe you check in uh, Mm -hmm. more before you react. That's yeah. That's the goal is just kind of that muscle memory or, or, or practicing my body getting used to something else. Yeah. Are you open to one thought that I have about it? A suggestion yeah. of some kind? So, so there's something, um, it's, I think it's from uh, DBT. It's called opposite action. I don't know if you've, you've heard of this term before. It's very simple. I mean, it's not so complicated, but the idea is that when we're experiencing intense, emo- this is all about emotional regulation. So in DBT, they have different skills for interpersonal effectiveness, mindfulness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance and the emotion regulation for me, cause I'm trying to bring mental health education into mainstream education. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in it coming through therapy. I don't think that that's the only way that this should be taught to people. So opposite action involves a person experiencing whatever emotions coming up. Like when people feel angry, their desire is to yell or to, you know, do something to, to, mm-hmm. t- to share or to express or to, desire, seek justice, whatever it is, but they, they act in a certain way in the world. And that's how they express their emotion. And opposite action is a way to regulate emotion where you do the exact opposite of what your brain and heart and emotions are telling you mm-hmm. to do based on the emotion that you're feeling. So for you, it's not bad, of course, that you reach out for help, but maybe there's an opportunity sometimes to do the opposite action, which is just like, right now, my emotions are telling me, right away that I need to get immediate help from somebody. Mm-hmm. So the opposite action is that you, you, you actually just don't do that. And you do something kind of opposite to that maybe, which for you might be checking in. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of reaching out, it's, it would be reaching in. Mm-hmm. Um, just doing something that doesn't represent what the emotion is telling you to do in that moment, because that's where the tunnel vision comes. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, that makes sense for sure. I love, I love the terms in psychology. It's like, I love attachment style and love language and things. I love when there's a term. I love that. So opposite, opposite opposite action. action. Yeah. Something simple where you just choose an interaction and I might not be explaining it the best and and I'm, I'm not an expert in DBT, but yeah, you choose to interact differently than what the desire of your emotion is telling you to Mm do. Um, so it sounds like you have something in place that you've started to do and want to continue to do, which is practice checking in with your body, mm-hmm. um, checking in with your inner experience, even before the day starts in hopes that that might be an opportunity or a cue when you're in the interactional field that you don't need to go out right away. Definitely. So what do you think you'll actually do? What do you, what do you think you'll actually do a, a little bit differently than what you have been towards this goal of emotional balance i love the opposite action thing i'm still thinking about this still because i'm just thinking about how i woke up this morning and yeah the go 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 mentality and just that one example of when i'm feeling that to uh to take time stop instead of go and slow down and think about how i'm feeling before i jump right Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because even when you talked about just lashing out kind of, or start pit, like fight picking. So that's what the, you know, the experience of the emotions telling you to do. And then opposite action is like, oh, I don't actually need to do that. I can't really control that this came up, but one way to regulate it. And that's why 
I have difficulty and I'm on the fence uh, with about like catharsis, cathartic anger and things like that. Mm. It's some people would say, well, it helps you get it out. Mm. Um, and I, I, and again, I don't want to speak from a place because I don't know enough about this, but then what I react to is that you're also building that muscle so that you you're Absolutely. developing this reaction and then you, you can just continue to feed it and do it more and more. Yeah. I do think that it built the opposite action, let's say in the morning is going to then build to hopefully being more willing to do the opposite action in my relationship, for right. example. Yeah. Right. So you have, if, if we were to get as tangible as, as possible, you, you're planning to do this 10 minutes of, of meditation mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. way. And you're also planning to, to as much as possible notice as more of a holistic way, not to never reach out. Of course not. And, you know, but as one way to regulate the emotion is the opposite action when your mind's mm -hmm. telling you run out and, and, and get mad or at somebody it's to maybe pull back take a deep breath, something like that. That's the opposite of what your mm -hmm. mind is telling you to do. Yeah. Cool. So All right. I thank you so much for coming on to share about uh, running along, run along podcast. Run along, yeah. We'll have all that linked up and, and we're looking forward to the Michael Phelps episode. In the <laughs> and we're looking forward to you interviewing when you interview him saying, Oh, one of those times I was on a podcast with my friend Noah, who's got a mm -hmm. great podcast that I would love for you to go on. Um, Absolutely. And then we can, we can get Michael Phelps on here. and we can Or like on. Wayne Gretzky or someone famous oh, in please. Canada. Please. <laughs> yeah, Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, of course. Wayne Gretzky. Um, Steve Nash. Steve Nash, who's now the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so there's lots <laughs> of people that I that, uh, no. But thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and your openness. And I hope that your change talk can in some small way inspire other people who have been thinking about trying their best to balance even from the opposite perspective people that have been afraid to reach out can learn from you how available that is and how supported you can feel um, so thank you so much Hannah thank you Noah for for having me on this was a lovely conversation um, and I hope we can keep in touch Don't forget to follow us on social media to keep updated on all our content. We are at Change Talk Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at Change Talk Pod on Twitter. Editing for this podcast is done by the lovely Atara Shields Tile. Music and theme song by Hope and Social in their album Yorkshire Electric EP with the song People Change.